Good morning. So good to be able to gather together with you, whether it be in person this morning or online. And I hope that you have a sense of God's presence in the midst of all that we are doing in the study of God's Word as we're seeking God in the midst of these days. Now, we're extraordinarily mindful of the fact that we're two days from election. And we're going to be exploring a passage of Scripture this morning I think has direct bearing upon this. So I'd love for you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 13. And we're going to be today looking at verses 1 through 7 as we're departing this Sunday from our series in the book of Acts. Now, as I'm about to read this passage, I want to put this in proper perspective. The Apostle Paul is writing this, this book in what is the year A.D. 57 from an area just outside of Corinth in the midst of his third missionary journey. What is significant about that is that he is writing this in the third year of the reign of Nero. Nero was very anti-Christian. His would be a 14-year reign from A.D. 54 through A.D. 68. He was the one who fiddled and let Rome burn, so to speak, as they say. But in the midst of it all, the burning of Rome, the blame was placed upon the Christians. So now, in the midst of that, in the context of that, what I want you to be able to see is that the Apostle Paul now is writing about matters of how you relate to authority. Now, I hope you will have in front of me you and re return to it again and again throughout the study this morning. The insert is also appearing online for you if you choose to. It's going to talk about what I will describe as uppercase versus lowercase authorities. God is uppercase authority. Government, which we'll be voting upon this week, lowercase authority. But simultaneously, and I want to tie this together with you, when Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, spoke of the fact that our citizenship is in heaven, in essence what he was also saying is that there is an uppercase citizenship, heavenly, and there is a lowercase citizenship, earthly, and somehow you're going to have to work all of this out in the way in which you are thinking strategically and in God's sovereignty how these things work themselves out politically as we turn now to this passage in the book of Romans, chapter 13, beginning with verse 1, taking it down through verse 7, and asking God to give us great insight now as we explore these verses together. Because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul now wrote these words, days of Nero, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Did you see that there? I'll carry on. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now you're up to verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities 
resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to do to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For, because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now, we have looked at seven verses of what is considered to be the classic passage on the relationship of God and government found in scriptures. There are other passages that you could explore as well. In fact, uh, every four years I've spoken since the beginning of my pastoral ministry uh, the whole realm of how to apply truth, timeless truth, in timely ways, even to elections, understanding that God is sovereign, and in the midst of God's sovereignty, what you and I can begin to explore this morning is that there's a sense of direction that is felt and experienced and noted in the realm of election. There's a sense of direction that is felt, experienced, and known in the realm of election. God will use his means to achieve his purposes for his glory, some of which might be mysterious to us at this moment, but we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose, you see. Now, with that in mind, we're going to look to our Lord in prayer, and at the end of this study, when all is said and done, we're going to pause and we're going to pray for the elections. But for now, Let's begin by looking to our Lord. Father, your sovereign, your God, your Lord, you are the creator of all. You are the sustainer of all. For from him, through him, and to him are all things, as the apostle wrote. And you sent the second member of the Trinity into this world, making the claim to be the Son of God, and then attested when after his crucifixion, three days later, he was raised from the grave, ascends to heaven, seated at the right hand, executing his authority, uppercase authority, over all of humankind and over all of history, past, present and guiding us into the future. You are sovereign. You are God. And you are good. And you send the Holy Spirit into our lives. 
to indwell us if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. And we seek you. We desire you. And now, Father, in this form, in this part of our worship experience, we're longing for your presence. We're longing for a sense of direction. These are complicated days. In your sovereign purposes, you've allowed for COVID-19 to be present in, of all times, an election year. We've seen the social unrest on the streets. And Father, in the midst of all these things of this very challenging year of 2020, in the midst of the change, we turn to the changeless, the one who's the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is the beginning and the end, our sovereign God. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. He swore it. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, and I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. While the oath is required by the Constitution, Presidents also follow the tradition started by George Washington and followed by succeeding presidents. You're with me? We're out on the streets of New York City. And out on the streets of New York City, there's, there was the capital of the young U.S. when George Washington was inaugurated as the country's first president, Federal Hall. Been there? Was there about a year and a half ago. Stood there watching people milling about, walking up and down the street, Wall Street region. Do they grasp the significance of the site? Because there's a story behind the setting. And we've got to understand the story behind that setting. Because Federal Hall and Wall Street was already crammed with Congress people and foreign ambassadors when Washington arrived on the scene for the ceremony on April 30th of 1789. But as he prepared to take the oath, suddenly it was discovered that a Bible wasn't present. Impossible to take the oath without a Bible. What are you going to do? Where do you look? Well, New York State Chancellor Robert Livingston remembered where a Bible could easily be secured just not far away from the site, went and got it. Bible was placed on a red, a red velvet cushion. They thought it was just opened at random, of course. But you know God's sovereign. And the passage that it was open to was found in Genesis chapter 50. Fitting, first book of the Bible for the first president of the United States, 
And there, where we read, Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Question. As for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Not random. Sovereign workings. As the President of the United States, the first, lays his head upon that passage of Scripture, not random, guided. Chapters in which Jacob reassured his sons, the beginning point of the people of Israel, that God was sovereign and God was going to protect and God was using them and he can take evil and create good out of it. George Washington delivers the oath and then adds these poignant, extraordinary words. I swear, so help me God. And then at that moment, a symbolic gesture, bent down and kissed the open Bible. What was he doing at this point? What he was doing was saying that there is an authority higher than he himself, higher than the Constitution itself. He did not have the Constitution before him. He did not kiss the Constitution. He kissed the Bible. Now, the Constitution deals with we the people. But the Bible speaks of the one who's the sovereign God. He understood that lowercase authority submits to uppercase authority. And so should we as we enter into this week of elections. What I want to do with you, with that stark historic memory embedded upon us, even when we walk the streets of New York City and think about what occurred there, is to draw three significant factors in the way in which God relates to government, even in this very day and age, COVID-19, social unrest, elections. God is still God. What I want to do is to first of all explore verses 1 and 2 with you because as we consider the relationship between God and government, we're going to begin now by noting together what I'm going to say, describe as the delegated authority of government, which is noted here. And now we're going to begin to break this down bit by bit and try to see how this relates to Tuesday of this week. Notice how it begins. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Stop right there. Notice the wording, every person. In other words, now, what the Apostle Paul is writing, and again, A.D. 57, A.D. 57, three years after Nero has already assumed the throne of Rome, to begin a 14-year reign of terror, there is the Apostle Paul penning these thoughts, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Every person without exception. Now, notice this very carefully. The governing authorities. What he will now do for us is what we penned and we developed in this whole description of the whole matter of authority. 
As I had written earlier this week, our citizenship is understood in relation to uppercase authority God and lowercase authority government. And when the lowercase replaces the uppercase, government replaces God among the citizens, resulting in the idolatry of government. There will be coinage throughout the Roman Empire in decades to come, ascribing divinity to the Roman emperors. How does one understand this? What Paul is saying is that in the midst in which people are trying to assert greater authority than they themselves have been given by God, nonetheless, in the days of Nero, he is saying, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, but now crunch time. There is no authority except from God. Notice with me. It does not read, for there is no authority except God, does it? Instead it says, for there is no authority except from God. What does that tell you? Authority is derived in God. Authority is delegated to government. Let me say it again. Authority is derived in God, but authority, furthermore, is delegated, decreed, in the whole relationship to government. And so what God is doing at this point is saying that there is the blessing that comes when God puts people in position of authority. And furthermore, those that exist have been instituted by God. In other words, God's taking the credit. What do you do then with the Hitlers of this world? What do you do in the Old Testament with the pharaohs in the days of the Israelites in Egypt? How do you understand all this? But then again, you've got Joseph making such statements to his sons. And they're right there in Egypt. And they're going to have to process this. And there will be an Esther in the Old Testament is going to have to process this. And there are going to be disciples who are going to have to process this when there's pushback against making full-spectrum disciples of people. But here now, the Apostle Paul has written these words. He wants us to understand these words. He wants us to apply these words. You take a deep breath and you say, and how does this relate to elections? It was a time of divisiveness. It was the election of elections. Not 2020, 1800. Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson is running against John Adams. The electorates divided, deeply divided, not only regionally, not only ideologically, but even more so, religiously, churches were divided. In few, if any, presidential contests, the historian writes, has religion played a more divisive and decisive role than this particular election. Quote, Jefferson's religion, or shall we say, lack thereof, emerged as a critical issue in the campaign. Why his opponents vilified him as an atheist. In the days before the election, 
a leading Federalist newspaper posed the grand question of whether Americans should vote for God, in other words, aligned with Adams, and a religious president, or declare against God and vote for Jefferson. Fascinating. And yet God allowed for Adams to be the second president of the United States, and God in his sovereign purposes allowed for Jefferson to be the third president of the United States. And all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose, which means then that he can use the elections for the sake of direction in order to provide what is necessary to take us from where we are to where things are going until our sovereign Lord returns and puts all things in order. Amazing. For as the psalmist puts it, for not from the east or from the west, not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one, lifting up another. Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. And then again, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Psalm 22, verse 28. So now, you've begun to establish within your mindset that there is an uppercase authority, God. There is a lowercase authority, government. And when the two get flipped, and we've seen this in communist China, communist Russia, and so on, then government becomes the idol of the people. And they begin to worship the government that gives rather than the God who gives until they find out Government is sinful, God is sinless, and God the sinless one sent Jesus Christ the sinless one to die for the sinful ones. Three days later being raised from the grave, the result being he's attesting to the fact that Jesus Christ has final say, ultimate authority. He overcomes the grave. Now out of this you come to verse 2. And when you come to verse 2, you and I read, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, not what we the people have appointed, though we might think that way. But furthermore, it goes on to say, And those who resist will incur judgment. At this point, then, somebody raises their hand. Typical. This happens oftentimes in a theological classroom. And it usually begins with, yeah, but. And I've heard it again and again. For example, though, what happens when the pharaohs of this world are, are ordering that, that baby boys of Israelite people are to be put to death? Are there exceptions to well, the Bible has offered us case studies of how to be able to understand what is known theologically as civil disobedience. When the government orders us to do which, that which is contrary to Scripture. Two women stand up. They were the beginnings of the pro-life movement, if there was such a thing. There they are in Egypt, pushing back against the Pharaoh. King of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, they're named Shifra. Pua. 
When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women, see them on the birth stool. If it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. But God sovereignly superintends and in remarkable ways, and you can study that in Exodus chapter 2. The baby boys are protected and preserved. You made your way in the book of Acts in the earlier days of our study in this, in this long, magnificent series that Luke the physician provides to Acts chapter 4. And there, Peter, John, are being told that they're not allowed to disciple. They're not allowed to proclaim that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. What was their response? Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, he's going to put it on them. You must judge. It's good. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And what is it that they had seen and heard? That Jesus Christ, uppercase authority, overcame the grave, validating the fact that he reigns. And these earthly rulers do not. They are lowercase authority. You tie that together then, and if you're of Dutch descent, you're able to fully appreciate what Abraham Kuyper, former pastor who became prime minister of the Netherlands, would write. 1880. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Isn't that beautiful? It's all his. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, as the psalmist would put it. Even the ecological movement has got to understand the grasp of it all. That one time the earth was made good. Now the earth groans. But there will come a day when the earth is glorified. The three G's, you see, of time. And Jesus reigns. Overall, uppercase authority. And when we flip it around and make the lowercase the uppercase, we have then become idolatrous people and treat government as God, which is what happens in communist nations, which is what happens furthermore in places like North Korea. So we bring proper perspective then into the everyday conversations of life where people are getting stressed out in this day and age regarding decisions that are being made and directions being taken, and you have a calm about you, and there's a sense of security about you, and you can smile in the midst of the storm because you know your God reigns. And you know elections, no matter how they turn out, are part of God's means of providing direction to take us from where we are to where things will eventually be when Jesus Christ returns and puts all things, all things, you see, in proper order. This is what the Magi would have had to understand when they withstood Herod's request that they come report in. They went a separate way. They understood. They had met with the King of Kings. They had seen a baby who demonstrated uppercase authority. Once we start connecting the dots here, uppercase versus lowercase, 
not flipping them around, both in the area of authority as well as in the area of citizenship. We are citizens above. We are ready now for the second of the two significant factors that emerge out of these verses. The first, the delegated authority of government. The second, the defined ministry of government. Do you realize that government has a ministry? And that that ministry has been ordained by God. Check out now verse 3. Now, for rulers, we are told here, are not a terror to good conduct. But to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. How do you understand all that? And what happens when a ruler is not good? And God's people understand the difference between good and bad. It was July 20th, 1944. Military conference in progress. Briefcase left under the table. And suddenly it explodes and there's this blazing sheet of flame. Moments later, Adolf Hitler, the intended victim, staggers outside the debris, singed, tattered, but surviving with only temporary paralysis in his right arm and a punctured eardrum. Mussolini, part of the Axis powers, scheduled to arrive soon from Italy. Hitler heads off to meet the train. Hitler brings Mussolini back to the setting. Frankly, Deuce, Hitler confesses, I regard this event as the pronouncement of divine providence. Hitler said that. And when Mussolini admitted he had a marvelous escape, Hitler responded, marvelous? More than that, this is God's intervention, Hitler said. Look at this room. Look at my uniform. And when I reflect on this, I know nothing will happen to me. Clearly, it is my divine task to continue on and bring my great enterprise to completion. Taken from Robert Lecky's book, Delivered from Evil, The Saga of World War II, pages 731-732. Now, what happens when we live in a time, whether it be the era of Nero that Paul lived in, when he blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome, or in the days of Hitler, who is doing such atrocious, committing such atrocious acts against the Jewish population. Where are you, God? Well, he's right in the same place as when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then we'd later say, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And you need to be able to get to that point of being able to say, Father, into thy hands, your hands, I commit the elections. 
I commit my life. I commit my tomorrows. I commit this nation. For in verse 3, we are now told as we break it down into bits and pieces. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct. And he writes this in the days of Nero. But to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Now he gets personal. He goes one-on-one with you and me. Do good. Do what's good. You'll receive his approval. 1600. Brilliant leader. Coming out of Great Britain. Samuel Rutherford. Part of developing the Westminster Confession of Faith but also wrote a book that I've returned to politically year after year after year called Lex Rex, which means law above the king. In it, we find that he argues that only God has absolute authority and even the king must obey the law, which rubbed Charles II the wrong way. And as a result, Lex Rex was burned in Great Britain by a hangman And Rutherford was summoned to appear before Parliament under charges of treason. Why? Because he argued that God is uppercase and King Charles is lowercase. Now Rutherford's being called in. Well, Rutherford's on his deathbed. So he replies to Parliament's summons by saying this. I have got a summons already before a superior judge. Isn't that good? And judiciary. And I behoove to answer my first summons. And ere your day come, I will be where few kings and great folks come. What's he doing? He's saying, I might be a citizenship citizen of this region, of this nation. But I understand uppercase authority. I know God through Jesus Christ. Do you? And three days later, the one who had king of the Jews plastered over his head on the cross was raised from the grave. You're up to verse 4. And astoundingly, Astoundingly, you and I are told that with regard to political leaders, using the singular now, he is God's servant. And you know what fascinates us about that word servant? It comes from the Greek word diakonos, which means then whoever gets elected president is God's deacon. And your senators are God's deacons. And your congresspeople are God's deacons. They're part of the diaconate. And so now, what that means then is that they are servants to the uppercase authority God, which means then that they will be guided by God even when they don't realize they're being guided by God. And what you say, but what, what if, for example, then they lead us to bad decisions? And what if they lead us to that which is wrong? 
Well, God can lead rulers to the point where a nation is being disciplined by God. Case in point. Hitler believed there was a God. And interestingly enough, the state church in Germany were, generally speaking, aligned to Hitler. So then what God was doing at that point was disciplining the people in that land through the decisions that were being made by the deacons, the ruler, and rulers of that land, you see. Because they were not uppercase authority, God was, and God was going to make certain that all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. He's sovereign, and the Hitlers and the Pharaohs and the Herods of this world are not, you see, because you can't keep Jesus in the grave, for he is God's servant for your good. But now, in the midst of verse 4, you and I are told, but if you do wrong, be afraid. Here's the matter of capital punishment. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And you say, but Gar, at the same time then, what happens when we've got, we've got rulers who don't, don't distinguish between right and wrong, between what is true and what is false, between what is good and what is evil? Ronald Reagan had to grapple with that. Ronald Reagan thought about that, and he had some things to say about that. When he stood in 1983 before a gathering of evangelical leaders in Florida, we know that living in this world means dealing with what philosophers might call the phenomenology of evil, or as theologians would put it, the doctrine of sin. This is Reagan. He then gave a glimpse of where he was heading by then stating, quote, there is sin and evil in this world. And the New York Times came down so hard on him at that point. How dare he call people evil? And we're enjoined by Scripture and the Lord Jesus to oppose it with all our might. And interestingly, shortly thereafter, he would go on to refer to the Soviet Union at that point as the evil empire. And it was that evangelical gathering where he first developed this train of thought that would lead to that global statement. Now, what God is going to do at that point is that he's going to allow people to begin to grapple seriously with the good versus the evil of this world and then be drawn to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where on that third day, Jesus demonstrates that evil is conquered by the one who is known as good. You can't keep a good man down, can you? Three days later, he was raised from the grave. Now, with that in mind, he's the authority. He reigns. He ascended. He's seated. You're up to verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. But the rulers are going to have to ponder this as well and ponder God's reign and the whole matter of God's wrath. Lincoln did. It was 1862. He was already wearied, penning his thoughts. September of that year. The North has suffered an incredibly disastrous reversal. 
second battle of Bull Run. He's now considering the emancipation of slaves in the South. At one of the darkest moments of the war, he pens these words. Meditation on the divine will. Imagine that. Here's what he wrote. The will of God prevails. In the present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is something different from the purpose of either party. And yet the human instrumentalities, working just as they do, are of the best adaptation to affect his purpose. I am almost ready to say this is probably true, that God wills this contest and wills that it shall not end yet. And the truth had begun to dawn on Lincoln, you see. God was at the nation was not at the nation's beck and call, but rather the nation was at God's beck and call in the midst of tumultuous years. You might say these are tumultuous years. But at the same time, if you and I were to make our way into the setting of the House of Representatives, you would find this incredibly beautiful fresco on the upper walls of the chamber contains the portraits of history's great lawmakers. And standing at the speaker's desk, where Nancy Pelosi, interestingly enough, would be positioned, looking straight down over the main entrance, one's eyes meet the piercing eyes of the first figure, Moses, in the series. The one who recorded the law from the original lawgiver. You can't escape the word of God. And that's why a Washington bows and kisses the Bible. He knows where truth is found. Truth in trying times. You're on to the third and on to the final factor. Because now you're up, you see, you're up to verses six and seven as you've made your way now to up to verses 6 and 7, you see thirdly the described responsibility to government. That you and I do have a responsibility to these, to these deacons, if you will, that God has placed in positions of, free, of authority, but lowercase authority. So out of this line of reasoning that Paul in the days of Nero and these words, you find this thought. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Astounding. Ministers of God. Attending to this very thing. So he doesn't distinguish the church does the spiritual and everybody else does the secular. No, he's saying everything is sacred. Back to Kuiper. Everything is God's. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And you say, Gear, hold it. Wait a second here. 
taxes? What if I disagree with the way the current government is operating? If you delve deep into the word taxes at this point, it carries with it the idea of dues or debts. For example, you take out a mortgage to begin to, and then you month by month pay off your mortgage to be able to experience the freedom of owning that house. Same word. What he's saying here is that, Highlander, when you were born into this world in the United States of America, you were a citizen in debt. You have dues that you pay. Now, what if Highlander says, but I don't like who's currently the leader or leaders? It's the very same word which would be used to describe whether it be an electrician or a carpenter or a plumber. You've contracted for them to come to your home to do some work. They do their work. They fulfill the contract. They leave. At this point, you find out, but you don't like the way that that, that electrician or that plumber, that carpenter, leads their life. So you say, I'm going to knock off 30% of this, and I'm going to give them that and that alone. That's not in the contract. Now, you see, you entered into a contract not based upon their lifestyle, but upon their work. You fulfill your obligation. And you're doing it before God. This is what he's saying here. You might not like Nero. Nero seems so opposed to Christianity. But in the midst of this, in AD 59, between the reign of 54 and 68, because of this you also pay taxes for the authorities, our ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And now you can imagine the, the Revolutionary War and the Stamp Act, and they're tossing the tea into the waters, Boston Harbor, and they're opposed to the taxes. But bear in mind at this point, they recognize that the taxes there were helping to support the state religion of Great Britain, which had moved away from the word of God, and they were resisting, and they viewed that at that point as conscientious objection. So how do you handle all this? You go to Jesus. You go to Jesus. Pharisees and Herodians, man, they didn't get along with each other. But Jesus has a way of uniting enemies, doesn't he? They had one thing in common. They wanted to trip Jesus up. Trip him up over the allegiance to political authority. Tell us, they're asking him, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I think they think you've got him. Either way, they're going to turn him in. Put Jesus in the middle. If he says no, lose, he would be a threat to the Roman government. If he says yes, he would lose the respect of the masses who hated the Romans. What does he do? Brilliant. Jesus asked them for a coin. Roman denarius. Only coin that could be used to pay the hated yearly poll tax. On one side was the image of the emperor 
Tiberius, around which were written the words Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Did you hear that? No. He answers the question with a question. Whose portrait is this? Whose inscription? You can see their eyes getting a little bigger. Caesar's. Then he says this. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. He puts lowercase authority and uppercase authority in their proper places. He eludes the trap. He puts Caesar in his place. He puts his interrogators in their place. He could have simply said, give to Caesar what Caesar's. After all, it was Caesar's image on the coin. But what made him add the second phrase, give to God what is God's? And the answer is found on the reverse face of the coin, which showed Tiberius' mother represented as the goddess of peace, along with the words, high est priest. Blasphemy. Commanded the worship of Caesar. Exceeded the delegated authority. But what God was saying at this point through the second member of the Trinity is that Caesar gets the coins. God gets your life. And three days later, the second member of the Trinity was raised from the grave. And out of all this, there's our responsibility to lowercase and to uppercase and we live for Jesus. We're going to close now by quieting our hearts and praying. We're going to pray now within the recesses of our hearts for Tuesday's election, presidential, senatorial, congressional. And we're going to ask God to work in a mighty way and all things will work out for the good because he is God. Let's spend some time in prayer and then I'll close. Stand together.
And so now, Father, with deacons all throughout Washington, D.C., many of whom do not realize that they are servants of yours. This is more than we, the people. It's the acknowledgement that our God is creator and endowed us with certain inalienable rights. So out of all this, we also have the right on Tuesday to vote. But rights carry responsibilities. So Father, with word in hand and word within heart, we now take all that's here and we ask that you work in a very powerful way. Remind this nation as a whole and us as individuals. What we are voting upon is delegated authority, not absolute authority. What we are voting upon is defined ministry, not ill-defined ministry. What we are carrying out is described responsibility. We're not left in the dark. And so, Father, with dual citizenship, we understand the uppercase as apart from the lowercase and putting everything in proper perspective. Even in our election, we worship you. Even in our vote, we worship you. And we remind ourselves, Father, our God reigns. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.